Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm all right. It's been a while since we've done this. It's been about a week and a half <laughs> since we released an episode, which is amazing. But um, um, it's been a while since we spoke in person due yeah. to a series of events. Um, yeah. Um, but, which happens uh, in the times. Which happens. Yeah. Um, but for people who are not us, it looks like we're really efficient and on it. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have spoiled that illusion. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, so it's history of sexy time. Yeah, and we are going to try and be more on it. We uh, we're going to endeavor to get back to two every two weeks, releasing an episode. So yeah, this is this is the start of our March times resolutions. <laughs> yeah, uh, once upon a time the Romans thought that March was the beginning of the year. Like so, so there um, you go. We'll be we're working on archaic Roman calendar. <laughs> Uh, what is uh, it that we do, though, here? And who are we? What is we? it that we do? Um, so, I am Dr. Emma Southern, Roman historian and gadabout. <laughs> and I am Janina Mathewson, just person, individual, of the world. <laughs> Writer, podcaster. Sure. Wonderful human. Um, or person of the world, if that's how you want it to be. <laughs> um, the only thing I feel confident in. <laughs> Uh, and together we um, answer people's questions that they don't want to Google themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And try to give them good answers that are, show how sexy and horrible and complicated the world is. Also, we have a new uh, website for the first time. We've actually made a website. <gasps> we do. We've, got We've only been doing com. this for 49 episodes. <laughs> we uh, finally did a website about it. Yeah, historyissexy.com for all your history sexy needs, including new merch that we've done also. Merch, um, Janina. Yeah. We're practically professionals. We're practically professionals. Um, but yeah, you can go there and get show notes. Um, you can support us if you're the sort of person who likes supporting podcasts. Um, and now you can do that just as a one-off, or you can do that monthly if you are that kind of person, which would be wild and amazing. Um, it would be lovely. But, yeah, so we're trying to be a little bit more together. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to put ourselves together a little bit. Yeah. Um, seeing as we've been doing this for this long, and um, we still enjoy it, and other people enjoy it, we may as well not stop pretending that we're just fussing around. About. Yeah. <laughs> be grown-ups. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's it. So it's historysexy.com, and now we can just send people there for everything because there's also a contact form. So you can send your questions there mm-hmm. and you can find out we Twitters and our merch and anything that you want to look up. It's all, it's all in one place. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, it's um, very slick and, uh, you know, pr- like, yeah, I don't know. We did it. Well done, us. <laughs> it's lovely. Yeah, well done, us. Um, and this week. What are we talking about, Janina? Uh, we are talking about contraception. This yeah. question comes from um, Jennifer, Jennifer's friend. So Yes, pretty hi. sure she did not give us the name. Yeah. Jennifer emailed us and asked us a question that we answered a while back. I think that might have been redheads, but I'm not sure. Um, and she said her friend had expressed an interest in the history of birth control um, because people will mention ways of preventing pregnancy in books but never explain the methods. So yeah. we're here to explain the methods. I have had a couple of books, in, like two, one movie and one book that have explained methods, and both of them were deeply unappealing. One is The Duchess, where there's one scene where Ray finds, like, takes out a wee, like, 
ornate little case that has in it um, a horrifying looking, I guess, condom slut type thing that I think literally has like a ribbon around its edge. Yeah. It looks very yeah, uncomfortable. Wow, I'd repress that. Yeah. Yeah, it's horrifying. <laughs> um, and then there's also the book, Michael Faber's Crimson Petal in the White, which mentions I'm just gonna I'm just gonna double check exactly what it is because it horrified me when I read it. Um, See, I looked this up the other day because I remember you mentioning it. Yeah. Um, and what it is is that in the kind of second page. Yeah, it's um, immediately you, the first thing you you meet do is like here is a prostitute douching with this mix, and what it is is water, alum, which I guess is is that aluminium, and probably. sulfate of zinc. Yeah. She's douching with after servicing a client. Yeah. So, I guess we're um, going to find out if it's really that horrifying. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, um, having a wee douche with some zinc is on the better end of things <laughs> that people put up there, I would say. Um, uh-huh. So, we decided to split this into kind of two. So, I'm going to... I did the uh, pre-modern and early modern stuff of what people did before there was such a thing as science. Mm-hmm. Um and then you did the kind of 19th, 20th century, 20, 21st century stuff where they had science, but also still hated people. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep, that, that um, sums it up. Yeah. Um, so mine, I would say, is more um, physically horrible for everyone with a vagina. And yours is more kind of morally appalling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so fun. Fun and sexy yeah. podcast about sex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Cannot wait. Um, <laughs> so, largely, when we're talking, I basically I broke up um, birth control into four phases. Mm-hmm. Um, phases might not be the right word now that I've said it out loud. Um, but there's four times when you can intervene to decide whether you want to have a baby. So you can do something kind of before or mm-hmm. during sex to block the sperm from getting up there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do something after sex to get it out um, or to empty the uterus, mm-hmm. as I've written, which now sounds dreadful. Um, you can then have an abortificant, so mm-hmm. to abort an embryo, or you can then get rid of the kid once you've got it. Um, sure. So you can expose it, you can adopt it out, you can infanticide it, Um but those are four times. We're going to talk about the first three. Um, <laughs> whereby two and three for most of human history are overlap significantly. Sure. Um, because there is no real way of knowing that you are pregnant for a fact uh, until quite late in the pregnancy, what we would consider to be a late like halfway through mm-hmm. um it's not until about 16 odd weeks into a pregnancy that you start to feel the baby moving um, which is what would in the olden times be called quickening is exactly and that's when you know for a fact that you're pregnant um and anything before that is delayed period delayed menstruation which mm. could be for a multitude of reasons mm. um probably because you're pregnant but also could be any other series of reasons yeah um like you know not eating properly or having endometriosis or all of the various things which cause periods to be weird sometimes yeah or um, even like emotional trauma or something you know yeah or you know um other diseases but the, the yeah. menstrual cycle is a delicate 
a delicate creature. It is. Um, And so that period of of kind of when you've missed a couple of periods, Mm -hmm. so kind of two, three months-ish, when you're not showing, when nothing's moving, is sometimes seen as contraception and sometimes seen as abortion but it's very often in ancient medical texts described as um trying to uh what's the word i'm looking for trying to start menstruation um so it's when you look in a lot of ancient texts what they're talking about they won't say contraception and they won't say birth control or anything like that what they will say is if you need to get your period started, do this. <laughs> wink, um, wink. And what that means quite a lot of times is um, ending an early stage pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, but they wouldn't have thought about it that way. Uh, and that is the main way in which anything between directly afterwards up to, say, 10 weeks um, is your main way of contraception of stopping Mm -hmm. yourself from having a baby um usually in the very earliest days uh and what it mostly involves is and this is up to the pre-modern world all over the world and still some places today is taking either orally or as a pessary some kind of herb Mm um and for the longest time in fact even now you'll find people saying that none of them worked um, <laughs> but in the 90s this guy called john riddell um actually went and looked to see if they did um uh-huh. and what he found was that one you find the same herbs and the same fruits appearing over and over and over again all around the world which suggests in that completely they do. yeah in completely separate cultures mint things from the mint family will turn up over and over again um mm. acacia will turn up over and over again um sylphium appears until the romans send it extinct um which is Penny because Royal. everyone wanted it so much right it was so good that yeah. they just like used it way too much and now we don't have it anymore which is again yeah. that means that we can't test how it works because it doesn't exist unfortunately we can't um but um there's a thing called astafedita which mm-hmm. is in the same family um and it absolutely will cause an early abortion uh, <laughs> <laughs> um and, and sylphium comes up um, in a load of Roman texts, but they, the Greeks discovered it, um, and but the, nobody was ever really able to fully domesticate it, so they could only get it from the wild and the Romans, absolutely, because they were um, an industrial... Like, it did things on an industrial scale. Um, they absolutely... Um, destroyed the population and sylphium doesn't exist anymore <laughs> uh but you so you see these things appear over and over again um the very earliest source that we have um is from something called the eberus scroll which mm-hmm. comes from egypt um it was written somewhere between 1550 and 1500 bce um so three and a half thousand years ago mm-hmm. uh, and 
It reads, to cause a woman to stop a pregnancy in the first, second or third period, use unripe fruit of acacia, coleocynth, dates and triurate with a sixth, seventh pint of honey. Moisten with a pessary of moisten a pessary of plant fiber and place in the vagina. Sure. Um, and this is a kind of thing that you will find is very very common. Is that you take whatever the thing is and you moisten some wool or some um, some kind of fabric, usually mm-hmm. wool. And you um, stick it on that there. And you stick it on up there, uh, <laughs> and it will. Or you take it orally. Some of them are taken in a tea. Um, so a lot of things um, are taken, like mixed with water or mixed with honey and then taken. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of putting honey up inside you. <laughs> <laughs> um, which sounds like an absolute nightmare for It sounds very But honey is a natural antiseptic. That's so true. Maybe so maybe it wasn't so bad. Um, but um, but a lot of things appear repeatedly. So colicinth appears everywhere from that first um, Egyptian papyrus all the way up to the 13th century, mm-hmm. all the way into 20th century India, and still being used in rural communities as something that will work in the days after otherwise unprotected sex mm-hmm. that will have a decent chance of i do worry people who are pregnant or who are trying to get pregnant you might and find that you end up with a list of things that you want to like not touch because it turns out that a lot of stuff (laughs) has been used and has been shown at least in animal studies to have quite a significant effect um Uh on pregnancy so pennyroyal for example is still used today and is still sold over the counter like in health food shops as a tea that will promote menstruation um and if you take too much of it it will kill you um cool cool uh uh, good to know yeah um and artemisia is another one like it will simulate menstruation and will like stop anything from um embedding in you uh and pomegranate is another one that comes up a lot really? um, across the world yeah so um just be and careful when you're have... casually scattering pomegranate seeds across your salad yeah um and there are animal studies that suggest that having lots of pomegranate can cause an 80 percent decline in fertility wow um, but that appears in all kinds of, like everything from Hippocrates up to Serranus, up to um, like 10th century Arabic texts. And uh, there's an Assyrian cuneiform text, which says putting pomegranate on wool and popping it up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that appears over and over again. And it's really surprising how much stuff really does appear come up a lot and has at least some medical evidence Mm. that it will inhibit inhibit fertility is the term that seems to be used a lot in these papers Um, i feel like this is a not 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 uncommon phenomena where we dismiss as you know modern western scientific people dismiss ancient remedies for things um but yeah there's a reason people use them like it's the thing with um i remember hearing about uh, seaweed as a treatment for goiters I think in ancient India in 
potentially ancient in Japan as well, and uh, which was dismissed for ages by the Western science community because seaweed doesn't is just a thing you can find. Yeah. But it turns out it's because iodine is really good for treating um, an underactive thyroid, which is what causes goiters, and there's loads of iodine in seaweed. So there are often, like, there is a science backing stuff up often that we just don't know. We just don't know what it is yet. Yeah. Um, or people just don't, like, they write it off and then don't test it. Yeah, because um, like, obviously they didn't know what they were talking about in the 4th century. Why should we listen to them? But, like, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't just make stuff up. <laughs> they experimented they too. Just because they didn't have microscopes and labs. Partly with writing mean... off stuff that's considered to be kind of peasant knowledge. And yeah. partly writing off stuff that's considered to be women's knowledge. Completely. Um, it's part of, I think, the um, taking over of sexual health concerns from midwives by yeah um early doctors and we there's a knowledge that was lost there that we haven't got back especially because and we've kind of talked about this before a lot of this was then considered to be witchcraft yeah um because if you're saying that this that sage for example sage is a thing that comes up a lot mm-hmm. um like across the world and across time as an anti-fertility drug as something that can be taken as a tea as can be pessaried um and if you're saying that sage can prevent a pregnancy then you are interfering with the ways of god um Mm. and you are uh either you're using demons or you are suggesting that you can um you can interfere with whether god wants to have a baby or not or you're lying and therefore it's witchcraft and therefore we're going to kill you sure yeah (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, so the vast, vast majority of things are something that you take in the either immediately afterwards or in the immediate aftermath um, mm-hmm. or, or in like, you know, the kind of days after sex in order to prevent conception. Um, or if you are a couple of weeks down the line and you are, um, you've missed a period, like mm-hmm. uh, haven't had one in a while and you're getting a bit worried then you will hunt find somebody find some sage find some sylphium if you can afford it find some anything you know there's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. um i kind of got bored of making the list but there's rue <laughs> queen anne's lace myrrh uh juniper um which which is an interesting one actually because pliny the elder recommends um rubbing juniper on the penis huh. so Here's one of the, that's one of the only ones where you see somebody suggesting putting something, like using something during sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and something where the man is involved, because all of these, and for all, like almost all of human history, <laughs> or Western history anyway, contraception is the women's responsibility. Mm-hmm. She, it's her, her job is to find something and take something to prevent conception afterwards mm-hmm. um it's not the man the man has nothing to do with it basically yeah. he can just fucking go um and this has strengths and weaknesses shall we say <laughs> <laughs> on the one hand it is entirely the woman's decision um and she holds it in her hands and that's knowledge she has that her whoever the you know, the person that she's had sex with is never needs to know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and all as far as he's you know he never needs to know that something went up there basically (laughs) um or that she had you know that she went to somebody and had some tea and then had an extra difficult period a couple of weeks later um it is entirely her world her knowledge she never has to know on the other hand it's kind of a lot of responsibility to put on a person yeah um and the fact that and you know and equally it's entirely her decision he has no real she says she wants a baby if she says she doesn't want a baby um yeah but that's the vast majority of it Uh, a lot of it involves putting things up inside you um but then that is and this is the fun part i suppose in that it's not actively (laughs) horrifying um there's the fact that people believe quite strongly in magic that is fun and there is a slim line between magic and um and medicine a very Mm -hmm. slim line and so you get loads of really cool stuff from the ancient world uh, which says things like if you spit in the mouth of a frog three times then you won't get pregnant for a year Oh man, that would be so so good if that was true. So easy, <laughs> no messing with hormones and no bothering. With... Yeah, yeah. Um, or wearing something brass um, around your neck will mean you never get pregnant. God, you know, if only just if only just it'd be so going. easy. It'd be so um, easy. That's from a ninth century Arabic um, medical writer. Uh, but then you have things like from the Roman uh, Dioscorides, who um, says if you hit a woman's belly with a hawthorn root three times, that will end any pregnancy. It seems unlikely, that one. I'm not as willing to believe that as I am, like, wearing a a brass necklace. (laughs) No, really? That one is... (laughs) That's your line. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm into the necklace with the hitting with the... Yeah, I'm not keen on that one. Um... There's I mean, one, the problem so with this, that one is it's just like that probably just depends on how hard and that just gets very, very unpleasant. <laughs> There's one um, that I remember from my very early days of doing ancient history is I remember my A-level ancient history teacher telling us about Hippocrates' method of getting rid of a, a very early embryo, mm-hmm. um, which is that he tells the story of a woman who... six days after sex jumped up and down touching her buttocks with her heels at each leap seven times which caused a noise and the seed to fall out on the ground you like this (laughs) as though someone had removed the shell from a raw egg (laughs) i um i'm skeptical of that account (laughs) i am highly skeptical of that account and i'm concerned if something (laughs) fell out of her yeah yeah um but but they believe they don't believe that a woman has anything to do with providing material for right. an embryo. It's just that uh, it has to go into her to grow. Yeah, there's kind of called flower pot theory, whereby mm. the womb is a flower pot and the man puts the seed in it, and then the, the woman grows a baby. And depending on how good she is at being a flower pot, depends on whether she has a boy baby or a girl baby. Mm. Um, so presumably they think the sperm can just fall out six days later which is horrible (laughs) Um, i have to say when i don't remember them saying it was good old jill partington don't remember her saying six days later i seem to remember her implying quite strongly that it was immediately afterwards which would make a certain amount of sense Um, yeah but but still not you know reliable 
Yeah. Um, there's a really good one from the kind of fourth century AD, um, which tells the reader that they should write a line from an Iliad on mm-hmm. their, on a tablet, on a magnetic tablet, and then tie it up with mule's hair and wear it around their neck. And that <laughs> line from the Iliad will protect them. And the line is, you should have been without offspring and should have perished unmarried. There's some powerful poetry. <laughs> I'd say there's quite a lot of um, magical beliefs around Homer that's really interesting that bits of Homer can have a magical protection. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's really fun. Yeah, that is really fun. And that, like, like, makes it feel like you're in a powerful provision when people think that Homer's writing had magical properties. I mean, why not? um, I would would like people to write more about it. Yeah. and then you have, um, there's another one involving a frog, which is kind of third century-ish, which involves taking seeds and soaking it inside the genitalia of a menstruating woman mm-hmm. um, and then feeding them to a frog. Uh-huh. Um, and then the frog bounces off and that will take the baby away. <laughs> so what, the frog has it now? Yeah. Okay. Um, I Presumably it is a different menstruating woman. I mean, it would have to be, generally yeah. speaking. I mean, some, some women do menstruate when they are pregnant, but it's very uncommon. Um, yeah, very strange. Mm. Um, or unless that one is a preventative, like you won't... I mean, much the same way that if you spit in the frog, mouth of a frog for a year. Yeah. Um, maybe this one is, if you, like, give them... if you're When you're menstruating, then you do the seed thing, and then you hand it over, and then you'll be grand. That one just feels like that's going to that's like the origin story of your Thumbelinas and Tom Thumbs. They, they, they were embryos that were given to a frog. <laughs> so yeah, they, they became. It kind of does actually, doesn't it? Yeah. Sounds like the beginning of something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then the other thing that you have, so we've got putting things up inside you, taking teas or herbs, um, mm-hmm. and magic. Wearing an amulet—that's another one. Uh, obviously fantastically ludicrous, is um, a kind of ancient... It's not douching, because they didn't. Douching doesn't seem to come about until much later. Um, Is fumigating the vagina. What does that involve? And I don't know if I want you to tell me. So you mix whatever herb is you want to use whatever you've got or mm-hmm. um you know anything from artemisia to your myrrh um cypress leaves um or rust is another one so you get some rusty iron uh-huh uh, and you put it in water in hot water and then some of them just say like hoik your skirt up and crouch over it mm-hmm. um and steam your vag I, I, mm. I mean, Dioscorides says use a funnel. So, <laughs> well, I'm unclear as to what way the funnel is. Maybe I don't know whether the small end or the big end is up. If you see, it seems <laughs> I'm like assuming... it would be face down, so that it's like yeah. gathering the smoke in the wide end and, and then, then channeling it up into into the yeah. edge. Um. So that um. So that's a thing that women did, is they would spend their days hunching over buckets of hot water full of rust. Wow. Um, um, 
seems trying to f- funnel it into their uterus. Yeah, I mean that seems like the maybe minus the rust, but that does seem a bit goopy. Like, didn't goop it- have a thing about steaming <laughs> steaming your bits? They did. Yeah, maybe that's where they got it from. Maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe that's what they got it from. <laughs> uh, then, so that's basically it for pretty much the entire ancient and medieval world. That's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, amulets, douches, pessaries. Um, when you, douching comes about later because you need a way to get it up there. Mm. Um, and you, in the Crimson Petal and the White, she's using like a wooden spoon with a towel wrapped around it to kind yeah, of, kind of shove it out yeah. her insides, uh, which sounds like a bad plan. Does. Um, for multiple, skip- multiple reasons. <laughs> yes. Um, when industrialization took place they started to produce um glass syringes and people use syringes right to just shoot Um, shoot some water up there to swoosh stuff up there um which include i found a really good article on the archaeology of um of birth control and contraception Mm -hmm. uh, which had all kinds of things that have been found in uh brothels that have been used Mm -hmm. um largely from america but um, here is a list of things that have been found in archaeological contexts um, relating to brothels uh-huh. um, and have also been recommended in um, medical textbooks to people who wish to prevent conception, um, which you find less of due to the fact that people get much fussier about preventing conception. Sure. Um, cocoa butter. Uh-huh. Boric acid. Mm. <laughs> uh, olive oil, mm-hmm. glycerin, tannic uh-huh. acid, uh-huh. carbolic acid. Uh, There's a top one of mine: biochloride of mercury. Doesn't sound like a great idea. That one. Potassium carbonate, mm-hmm. uh, sulfate of zinc, borax, uh-huh. vinegar, lysol. Uh huh. <laughs> Castor oil. Mm-hmm. Turpentine. Co- okay, cool, cool, cool and great. <laughs> and quinine. Uh-huh. Uh, technically, a lot of these will absolutely destroy your vaginal pH levels. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine it's not going to be a fun time. And therefore will prevent sperm from being able to live up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that that might have side effects. Yeah, I can't imagine just getting away with that with a completely clean bill of health you're doing you're doing some no, nasty gonna... nastiness to yourself there no and a problem with douching although it is incredibly common once you start to move into the early modern period as a thing that that is recommended and that is um being clearly done by people um a brothel from boston for example they found 19 glass tube syringes that were used for swooshing Mm -hmm. things um it's actually more likely um unless you are using something very acidic uh to just push the sperm further in sure and therefore have uh the opposite effect of what you want um at least if you are using plain water or something like that, yeah. um, it's just going to wish it in. Um, and it's, you would have probably have been better off having some sage tea. Sure. Yeah, it sounds much more pleasant. 
Yeah. Um, men start to get involved in um, using some kind of protection around about the time that they start realising amongst themselves that sexually transmitted diseases exist. Sure. <laughs> um, and this is where we get the invention of the condom. Yay! Uh, it's first mentioned in 1563 mm-hmm. by a man named Gabriel Fallopio. <laughs> Uh, I love a bit of determinism. Yeah, he did indeed name the fallopian tube. He was like one of the world's great anatomists. Um, And he uh, tried out this covering for the penis made of linen. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine linen would be 100% effective. It was not designed to prevent conception originally. It was designed to prevent men from getting syphilis. Sure. Um, and so therefore, the comfort and protection of the woman was somewhere around the bottom of the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, but because it was so successful, um, it kind of caught on. Uh, and there is a... I'm very sad that this is a myth. There is a myth that... Uh, the condom was named for a doctor condom who was a physician in Charles II's court who Charles II asked him to provide him with something that would reduce the amount of illegitimate children he had. <laughs> Which is a brilliant story. Without him having to have any less sex with random women. Exactly, because as we all know, Charles II was a shagger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love him. But heartbroken I was to discover that that's not true and somebody went to great lengths to prove that it's not true for which I resent them um, <laughs> but not true anyway a hundred years later we find the first ever condom the mm-hmm. earliest ever condom found in human history it was found in Dudley Castle mm-hmm. uh, where there was a siege and they um, bricked up a latrine during that time uh-huh. and then forgot it existed and left it there sure I mean until the 20th century where they uncovered the latrine and they found in there loads of stuff that hadn't been touched since 1642 including a bunch of condoms which were wow. made of animal skins I did hear somewhere that Casanova had one made from lamb skin yes he which did which sounds uh, and he wrote about it um <laughs> The story is about the Casanova's one's quite good because he records like women's reactions to them, um, <laughs> and it, some women are like that is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, which is because so they are expensive, they are reusable. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> they are made of um, animal skin or animal intestines, so like sausage. Skin. See, the animal intestine one doesn't bother me so much because I know what it looks... Because I've eaten the sausages. I'm like, yeah, that's like yeah. as close from the natural world without having to use a factory that you could get to like, you know, a latex sheath. Uh, but I when mean, it's like... Are... I, lambskin just seems... You know, See, very... I suspect when they are saying lambskin, what they mean is lamb intestine. Okay. I'm I'm because... I'm not so bothered, but like that sounds fine. That's I mean <laughs> still horrifying compared to what we can do now, but like better. <laughs> yeah. Um but they um so they're super thin, they're hand sewn, obviously. 
Um, mm-hmm. And they have a ribbon on the end. Oh, just like Ray Fiennes in The Duchess. Yeah, to tie it on. Um, and then the word condom is first mentioned in a poem called A Scots Answer to a British Vision. Uh-huh. Uh, um, and then very quickly kind of is gets into circulation. Um, and there is this thing called The Potent Ally, which is this 18th century uh, collection of rude poems. Um and three of them are mock heroic poems about how brilliant condoms are. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. That seems fair. Uh, do you want an extract of one? Yes, yes please. Uh, okay. Uh, okay, here we go. Happy the man who in his pocket keeps, whether with green or scarlet ribbon bound, a well-made condom. He neither dreads the ills of Shankers or Cordee or Bobo's dire, thrice happy he, for when in lewd embrace of transport-feigning whore, creature obscene, the cold insipid purchase of a crown, blessed chance, sight seldom seen. Wow, that's just beautiful. And they're all like that, like the condom... Um, is considered to be like the great hero, uh, yeah. and um, and they were very into it, but mostly because it protected them from um, from syphilis or yeah. any other kind of sexually transmitted diseases. Absolutely no interest yeah. in whether uh, women got pregnant from it. Mm, we're going to see some more of that. <laughs> yeah, um, and then we get. Uh, to female barrier methods which are not very common until very very recently Mm. Um, there is a couple of mentions of um, putting things in there there's one from 230 from the there's a Jewish text called the Tosfita Mm -hmm. um, which recommends that um, this is one of those things where you're a bit like, okay, uh, minors, pregnant women and nursing women should be friends with the sponge um, sure. because minors will probably die if they have a baby. Pregnant women don't need any more in there um, <laughs> and nursing women need to recover. Um, and that is broadly it for mentions of sponges, um, although we're going to get to Elaine in a minute. Uh, <laughs> um, until basically Mary Stopes mm-hmm. um, but again from that article on the archaeology of contraception they're archaeologically in kind of brothel and sex contexts here is a list of things which have been affixed to a cervix at some point <laughs> uh-huh. this is largely in uh, the United States so mm-hmm. um fairly recent we're talking kind of 18th 19th 20th century um these are attached to the cervix with the glue of either quinine or medicated fat or vaseline sure sounds fine are you ready (laughs) yeah beeswax Uh uh-huh uh rubber bits okay citrus peel sure and my personal favorite copper pennies Wow, just just shove a penny up there and glue it on. I am impressed at the amount of self-knowledge that a uterus haver would have to have yeah. to know how to glue a penny to their cervix. Yeah, you've got to be able to I would have no time. idea how to begin. No, like, no. <laughs> um... Yeah, 
yeah. uh, there are the only other time that vaginal sponges come up in writing or the main other time is uh, good old jeremy bentham mm-hmm. he of having his head in ucl um and the inventor of the panopticon and swivelized uh, lunatic um <laughs> He advocated that uh, poor people should stop having babies by using vaginal sponges um, because poor people shouldn't have babies. Um, And so he recommends vaginal sponges. Sure. Um, Yeah. Um, And he is working at the time when people start to... People start to talk about preventing conception a lot more than they start talking about um, speeding up menstruation or stimulating menstruation because they are starting to work out how pregnancy actually works. (laughs) Did you know that the ovum wasn't discovered until 1826? No. 1826? And a man investigated a dog ovary until he found them. Wow. Um, but people can, in the kind of 17th century, medicine has reached a point where a man can, a doctor can feel from the cervix um, and from feeling the belly much earlier than they previously could. So mm-hmm. quickening is no longer the point at which a pregnancy is confirmed. Delayed periods are enough to go into a doctor um, who will then have a wee prod about to see whether you are pregnant and that means that people start talking about abortion as a thing that's happening much earlier in the process Mm -hmm. um whereas it would not previously have been called abortion and then people start worrying about barrier methods which prevent conception at all sure yeah um because it's a science thing and it's become a thing that men are suddenly poking their hands up you yeah. Um in a way that's much less pleasant even than having a bunch of wool up there soaked in sage. Yeah. Um so that's when you start moving to barrier methods and immediate douching afterwards and um and things like that. Yeah. Um which I guess kind of brings us up to the modern conception of contraception which mm-hmm. um There are kind of two things that drive the change in thinking, uh, like societal thinking around contraception. One is uh, technology and the invention of vulcanized rubber, the development of vulcanized rubber, basically Mm -hmm. rubber that has been processed so that it can withstand higher temperatures and is less likely to, um, is more malleable, I guess, and less likely to break and crack. Um, It's also the opening of the first birth control clinic which opened uh, was opened by Aletta Jacobs in Amsterdam in 1882 it, that kind of is the first time contraception be- becomes a, a social issue like with where, where you were, there is a place specifically designed for women to talk about mm-hmm. contraception issues and she uh, kicked off like a lot of people were inspired by her including um Marie Stokes in Murray Stopes in the UK and um, Margaret Sanger in the US who then started their own clinics. Yeah. Margaret Sanger's initially her first clinic was shut down after 10 days but um, she opened them again and her clinics are what are now known as Planned Parenthood in the US. Um, mm-hmm. 
she what's interesting about that is that she got a lot of funding from um a woman called Catherine McCormick, who uh, her husband had um, schizophrenia in the family. So she, and he suffered from it, his sister suffered from it. So she became very concerned about um, passing on the condition to potential children, which is why she first got interested in contraception as a subject. But then after her husband died, she just spent the rest of her life advocating for women's causes. And she funded, uh, she funded Margaret Sanger's work early on and ended up in the 50s being one of the major funders of research into hormonal contraception so she had this really big impact um over time which is amazing she seems like a badass she was like the first woman to graduate from mit um she yeah i think (laughs) seems like she was pretty pretty cool pretty badass yeah yeah um but so in initially, Elida Jacobs Clinics and uh, Margaret Sanger's early clinics, what they were trying to do was distribute uh, diaphragms, which had just sort of been able to be made commercially um, because we had the rubber technology to do it. But they were often stymied by the laws. For example, in the United States, Comstock laws basically... Uh, they were anti-pornography laws um, mm-hmm. that prevented the distributing distribution of material related to anything smutty or sexy and that included contraception um so they were basically importing and distributing diaphragms illegally um and there were laws like that like Mm -hmm. they were quite common there were similar laws in canada and there were laws in germany that were similar um but uh the the thing is, is that diaphragms were a really good source of profit for rubber rubber manufacturers. So, of course, um, so they really backed it. Um, they were only available for middle class women, really, because they weren't cheap. Um, they also have to be cleaned to be reused, so you can't really use them if you don't have access to suitable cleaning um, mm-hmm. facilities and that sort of thing. Um, this also at this point people they were already I, I don't know what I remember from having sex ed always being told about how important it was to basically double bag it have to use two contraceptive methods basically to cover the <laughs> okay, fact that yeah. nothing is 100% effective and that was you um, had like good birth con- like sex yeah. education though yeah so we were told like be on the pill and use a condom or use a condom and sper- spermicide um, and this is where that messaging starts most doctors recommended using diaphragms with spermicides um which is traces back to douching methods that were advocated in the centuries before um which again the same horrifying stuff comes out sulfate of zinc and salt uh vinegar bichloride mercury uh all of that as a to combine it with your diaphragm to be really sure uh nothing nothing's getting through Nothing's getting through. Yeah. Um, this always just reminds me of whenever anyone talks about diaphragms is being a child and like family friends um, showing us their mum's diaphragm. <laughs> um, and yeah, and it, like they're quite big. And like mm-hmm. when you're a small child, we can't have been that old. Um my mom's going to text me after this and ask me who it was but she'll probably guess um but i just remember her daughters being like taking us into the bathroom and showing us and us all looking at the size of it and just being like ah! <laughs> oh my god um in my memory it is obviously significantly larger than they actually are but they are pretty big um yeah. 
and yeah and, and that's a problem so, is if you have to get the right size as well otherwise they get yeah. knocked askew there are all sorts of ways a diaphragm can be uh compromised if you if you have if you if you have sex too energetically they can be knocked off course <laughs> not a great method. um no yeah but uh alongside the development of diaphragms were obviously vulcanized rubber was also used to make commercially produced condoms for the first time um and there are loads of fun euphemisms for condom that there don't seem to be for diaphragms. And I like the way they sometimes go in two directions. So, for example, in England, uh, condoms, rubber condoms, were called French letters. And then in France, they were called capotes anglaise, which translates to English hoods. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think um, that they were called English riding coats. Uh, amazing. Is what Casanova calls them. Amazing. Which somebody pointed out to me... Um, in Ireland, riding is a euphemism for sex. Um, so English riding coats is even funnier in Ireland. <laughs> That's very good. Um, <laughs> but the thing was with condoms. See, the the way that diaphragms were being talked about and advocated for was that they gave women agency. That, like, mm-hmm. depending on the clinic, but clinics could provide them to women without their husband's knowledge or consent. So it was about uh, conception being the choice of the woman without relating to her husband which is kind of like obviously as you talked about contraception has predominantly been a a woman's concern but it is also coming out of this time when women were like the job of a woman was to have babies whether or not she wanted Mm -hmm. to really this was why you you know why a wife existed socially yeah and economically yeah um the whole point of marriage yeah. yeah so the um early advocates of diaphragms were basically saying fuck that but um condoms still were very associated with basically seeing prostitutes they were there to prevent uh, infection rather than pregnancy and uh mm-hmm. so it was very difficult for people who wanted to advocate for them as contraception between married people because it wasn't seen as something you would use with your wife it was for extramarital sex um but because condoms were used to combat stds or stis that means that the laws that prevented people talking about diaphragms didn't apply to them because they were a health item rather than a sex item Um, okay yeah okay yeah because they're for protecting yeah so because you could talk about them openly uh it did they, they did start to become more more popular over time and that then led to contraception being the ma- a male concern for people women who were had boyfriends who they were having sex with expected their boyfriends to source condoms and worry about pregnancy um, yeah. because condoms were something that women could get for themselves or would um the, and also the condom market just boomed during the world wars <laughs> again oh, for, yeah. for infection reasons people wanted to protect their soldiers um there were often army-approved brothels um, where mm-hmm. where condoms would be mandatory, um, and yeah, which is hilarious. The other thing I like about this wee moment in time is, uh, for example, during World War Two, the Japanese military took control of rubber manufacturers, manufacturers. They were all considered under military jurisdiction. And the condoms that they produced during this time were given specific names depending on which branch of the military they were designed for. So army (laughs) 
army condoms were called things like attack number one or attack champion <laughs> and condoms for the navy were called oh iron god. cap which is fantastic it's oh my god this is like when they name deodorants for men like yes! oh we have to give yes! it a manly name <laughs> we can't Arctic call it blast. you know <laughs> if they were marketing it to women it would be called like floral soft <laughs> yes but yeah. oh it's for men so we'll call it attack number one <laughs> yeah <laughs> amazing uh, Great. yep it's fantastic um so during this time, we were also, the, uh, the main methods, condoms, diaphragms, and IUDs, which have been in de- development since the late 19th century. The first patent for an IUD was filed in 1895 um, wow. by a guy called George Gladman, although it doesn't, it's not clear whether or not he ever actually manufactured it. Um, but this, p- this period is just brutal to look at. There was a German doctor, Dr. Holweg, who was charged with negligence causing bodily harm because of the experiments he did on his IUDs around 1903. Um, I couldn't, I don't know what what he did, but he was brought before a court for for it. So. I imagine it was quite bad if it, it was seems, that time and he was doing something yeah. um, to allow were, people to do all kinds of things. The thing is, is that the, all the ones that were being produced at this time or experimented with just were, they just sound rough. They caused sepsis, miscarriage, stillbirth, heavy menstruation, uterine perforations. <sighs> and also they're not, they weren't reliable. They often just fell just straight failed. out. Yeah. Um, there was also happening at this time as there has always been things like timing methods and rhythm methods and pullouts, which I only mentioned because yes. I found some great euphemisms. Um, for example, in Norway in the mid 19th century, the pullout method was called hop of ifartin, which translates as jump off while the going is good. Um, <laughs> uh, where Do you want to hear my favorite one? What's your favorite one? My favorite one is that it was called Vatican roulette. <laughs> Because the Catholic Church didn't ban it? Well, because it's the only, um, like, Catholic Church-approved way of attempting to uh, to regulate your fertility. Mm. Like, because yeah. they obviously ban any form of contraception, so all you can do is... Pull um, is pull out or use like or try to um, use rhythm method. Yeah, which did improve. Rhythm method did improve in around this time. I think it was in the thirties that we discovered when exactly when during a menstrual cycle ovulation occurs. Before yeah. that, it was like a margin of error of like a week or something. So it's not before that. It was the exact opposite. They like the Greeks and Romans write about it a bit, and they think that um, you are. They thought the women were the least fertile at the point at which they are the most fertile, <laughs> like <laughs> directly before the period. Um, so they, uh, which is yet another reason why you can't trust them. Bless yeah, me. sure. Um, the only other contraceptive methods at this time were permanent sterilization, uh, which is a rough, rough topic because that gets hard into eugenics. Um, for sterilization, mm-hmm. super, super common. Um, it began in the US with a guy called Harry C. Sharp, who lobbied for a state law in Indiana that mandated the, ster- the pres- in-prison sterilization of the unfit, and uh, 26 yeah. states followed suit passing similar laws, um, which is obviously something that hits even harder after the stories that came out around about ICE uh, conducting mm-hmm. forced sterilizations last year. It is one of those things that seems like it should have died and, and has not. Yeah. 
Um, There's a very good book called The Nazis American Model, which is about this kind of thing. And it's basically how the Nazis took a lot of their eugenics from the way that, um, from American policies largely mm-hmm. surrounding African-Americans. Yeah, yeah. It's not really um, hard to see the connective that, tissue there. I highly recommend um should you wish to be like just very depressed about the world <laughs> um it's, it's yeah it's really hard to be find reasons to be depressed around the world right now right? <laughs> you've got to really seek them out you've got to really look yeah oh, yeah oh. Um, but should you wish to try and find another one then there's one <laughs> so this is but the, those so those were all we had until the 30s where we didn't get anything new but we got the beginning of something new which was um some animal experimentation showed that progesterone could stop ovulation um it didn't it didn't lead to anything for another couple of decades it was not till the late 1940s that a doctor called carl uh, girassi figured out how to synthesize progestin from a wild yam root and mixing wild yam root so that it could be put into a drug yam root yeah i know did not know that um so that it could be used as a medication that prevented ovulation in women um so he was developing his own and then there were also studies being done by a guy called dr john rock and dr gregory pincus um and these are the ones who were being funded in part by um catherine mccormick it was really really this was a point where um like medical non-profits were not interested in studying hormonal contraception um Mm. because it was for sex and sex is you know yeah smutty and dirty and it's bad you can't you shouldn't be having sex except for procreation yeah um but pharmaceutical companies knew that they could make money from it so they were willing to fund it so um there was funding behind this research that was being conducted still under comstock laws which meant that it was very difficult to find participants so in like the, an early study in Boston with uh, Dr. John Rock and Gregory Pincus, they could only use 50 participants and it was very complicated to arrange everything because of the laws. So they wound up going to Puerto Rico for a much larger trial uh, with over 200 women, um, which is horrifying. They were given no oh. information about the risks or the side effects. And who, when they reported their side effects, uh, which included nausea, dizziness, headaches, and blood clots, they were dismissed as unreliable. Um, well, you know. So they basically, the research that showed side effects was not included in anything <laughs> that uh, led to their funding. Um, the female physicians who were working on the trial were trying to draw attention to it. Um, the, I mean, one of the side effects was cervical erosion. Christ, what? I, I, I know. That um, can erode? Yeah, apparently. Um, but they just didn't include it. Uh, they, they just dismissed those concerns as they tried to get FDA approval, um, which they eventually got in 1960, after which the pill, like, super took off. I mean, it was a miracle. Mm-hmm. It must seem like a miracle. Just take a pill and you won't get pregnant. Um, yeah. In the US... You'll have migraines and depression, but you won't get pregnant. Yeah. Um... Clinics could choose what was required before they offered them as well. Like you could, um, some some clinics would only make them available to married women. Um, mm-hmm. Some clinics would perform a pelvic exam to check if there were possible health concerns that might might make the pill inappropriate. Some didn't. Some just gave it out. Um, there was disparity between women on private and public healthcare systems. 
um, it was kind of being beset on all sides pretty quickly afterwards because there were those who saw the existence of the pill and the and providing the pill as a tacit endorsement of premarital sex. Um, mm. While others were complaining that it was an insufficient nod to sexual health concerns that that if you are offering the pill, you should also be offering pap smears. Yeah. All sorts of things. Uh, so by 1969, there was a book called The Doctor's Case Against the Pill by Barbara Seaman, which is ironic, um, <laughs> <laughs> who outlined cases of women developing diabetes, blindness, depression, hypertension, strokes, um, and s- spoke about the general failure of doctors to make patients aware of the risks of taking the pill. Um and also revealed that drug companies were giving doctors a proper profit mar- margin for prescribing the pill over other contraceptive methods. Wow. Um, which led to a Senate Committee on Small Business Practices, which just seems good. Like, yeah, hold a hearing. They only called male witnesses. <laughs> they did Naturally. not ask any women to talk. Um, so uh, feminist protests, protesters disrupted uh, the hearing. So to demand that their voices be heard. After this, people started, drug companies started adjusting dosages and trying to find a lower dosage that wouldn't cause a severe side effects and would still work, which is how we've ended up with pills and implants today with the dosages they have. Still cause side effects, but not quite as severe as the ones in the early in the early days. Um, no one's cervix is eroding. No. Hopefully. I hope not. Yeah. Um, it was also around this time that the, the Depot Provera shot was introduced, which was a hormonal injection you got four times a year. Initially, mm-hmm. it was to treat endometriosis and miscarriage, um, but it was developed as a contraceptive, but it had the same side effects as the higher dose pills of the 60s. Um, despite that, it was supported by World Health Organization. It was distributed all over the world to around 80 different countries, particularly low-income communities. Um, For example, in apartheid South Africa, uh, Mm -hmm. they went around providing the Depo-Provera shots for free, um, but things like smear tests and uh, STI screenings were not free. You had to pay for those. So it's just an example of this is an attempt to stop people having babies people who we do not think should yep. be having babies uh but it's not actually yes, approach to absolutely uh but without actual concern for people's health yeah um or their choice to have children yeah yeah um, it's also uh brings us to the return of the iud with the delkin shield debacle um which there were again more being because the pill was such an economic success there were people trying to develop more methods that could get them more money including IUDs uh the Dalkin Shield was distributed from 1971 and became the most popular IUD for a time until it became clear that they had just not been at all honest about the problems with the design it mm-hmm. basically sucked bacteria up through the vagina into the uterus. It caused uterine perforations, permanent infertility, ectopic pregnancies, and in some cases, death. And despite that, they kept, that was all, that all came out in, I think, 1973, but it kept being distributed until 1975, and it wasn't recalled until 1984. Wow. Um, yeah, which is wild. Um, 
There are, this is, I, I did, you've spoken about sponges. I did put a wee note about Elaine Sponge from Seinfeld because yes, I never actually tell knew me. what it was. Um, <laughs> Livia so, has just come to join in because Livia also wants, wants to, know to know about, about the sponge. If you do yeah. not have not seen this episode of Seinfeld, there is an episode where Elaine's favorite contraceptive method, which she just calls the sponge, uh, is discontinued. So she buys up as much as she can find and then has a hell of a time deciding which men are worth sleeping with because she has to use up one of these last sponges that she has. What she is talking about is called the Today Sponge. It was approved in 1983 by the FDA and it was basically a polyurethane sponge that was permeated with spermicide that you just shove on up there and it would kill everything that came in. Um, it was discontinued in 1995 because the FDA ordered them to make crucial upgrades to the fact to the factory um mm -hmm. and they couldn't afford to to make them so they just shut down okay um and unfortunately for elaine and that was the end never, of them yeah that was the end you see i was always fascinated by the idea of the sponge just because the idea of like putting it in taking it out is it a, what is it yeah is it a never was entirely sure if it's like a kitchen sponge type sponge or a natural sponge yeah or... it's, it's it was very um, mysterious and also she was so passionate about it i was like is this what is so wonderful about she really this? sold it she really did contraception it doesn't i mean i suppose if it's got spermicide in it i don't know if i would trust it so I, yeah i don't i don't think so it definitely doesn't sound any better than just a condom <laughs> yeah i mean sponges are notoriously like things go through them yeah <laughs> holy notoriously holy is what i'm thinking yeah yeah um, um there but... have also been some attempts during the 20th century to find uh contraceptive cons contraceptions for men other than condoms there have been some attempts that i had heard i remember hearing years ago that initial initial hormonal contraception was designed for men um, but that they couldn't handle the side effects so it switched to women yes that doesn't, i have heard that one too that doesn't appear to be true i think there were there have always been there have been attempts to make hormonal contraceptive for men since the 1970s um mm. but it is just seems harder to mess with testosterone like than it does to mess with estrogen there are further complications yeah. um and the side effects have been a bit more severe than on women or the as severe probably as the effects as the early early pill had on women um but not like we currently have um they yeah. haven't found a way to do it uh, i i feel like they probably it's not as well funded because yeah there's also a difficulty in asking men to take it just because men are socialized not to put gotcha. up with stuff in the same way that women are I yeah think. Um, I remember seeing a thing once as well that uh, a significant proportion of women just wouldn't trust men that they were sleeping with to take it. No. There are also methods that have been explored about um, mechanical blocks, basically a, um, similar to a vasectomy, but uh, rather than cutting the line, you block it. Um, but they've, oh, never, okay. they've never made it to market. They have, they've struggled to find funding. But they do seem to be effective. They just haven't quite got there yet. Um, I feel like that's probably a hard sell as it well. It does seem like a hard sell, which is a shame because that seems perfect. It's like not messing with anything hormonal. It's just done and dusted, yeah. reversible. Um, the other yeah. methods that have been tried are temperature alteration because uh, as oh. everyone who has heard about the dangers of keeping your laptop on your lap, uh, testes need to be kept cooler than 
the rest of your body yeah. uh, in order to keep the sperm alive. So there was a Swiss physician called Martha Vogley who worked in India between 1930 and 1950 who claimed that if men put their testes in a bath at 48 degrees for 45 minutes a day for three weeks, they would be sterile for six months. Um, I don't believe that was ever tested. Um, That's so specific. Yeah. Uh, in the 60s, uh, Dr. John Rock, who was one of the early... Um, doctors on the hormonal contraceptive contraceptive bandwagon modified a jock strap uh, that would keep the testes covered with an oil cloth and tissue paper keeping them at a heightened temperature uh, to have the same effect but again it's not clear if he ever had that tested and he couldn't get funded uh, no one was really <laughs> no one interested was gonna in fund his freezing jock strap situation yeah that one feels like a hard sell too. <laughs> it seems like a real. It seems like it would be super um, uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, like you'd be hard pressed to persuade. I don't ever want a baby, and you'd be hard pressed to persuade me that that sounds like a good plan. Yeah, no, yeah. it seems it seems rough. Um, but the only other thing I think that is important to briefly talk about is um, the way over the 20th century the idea of reproductive rights has changed. Um, in the early days with, you, you know, you, Margaret Sangers, it was all about women having the right to privacy and to choose in privacy and personal, their personal lives what they were going to do about their own fertility. Um, mm. As we got closer to the 21st century, uh, we heard a lot more because, you know, if they fought for a really long time to her, we heard a lot more from of women of colour talking about, uh, about reproductive rights because their experiences were so much vaster in their horror basically because yeah. where white women have been expected to get pregnant when they don't have to other women have often been denied the chance to get pregnant yeah. when they do want to um we've talked already violently about the history enforceably. of violently enforceably uh yeah so uh, we who have um women like billy avery and loretta ross opening organizations in the 80s to advocate for uh, specifically reproductive rights for Amer- African-American women and other women of colour. Um, they There were drives by African-American women, Indigenous women and Latina women around forced sterilisation that led to federal guidelines being established to limit it, which obviously, as we've talked about, has not stopped it happening at all. Um, in addition, that conversation started to broaden to include like to basically face up to the idea that no one is deciding whether or not to get pregnant in a vacuum it's not a private and personal decision it involves your family and your community there are lots of things you consider when you consider whether or not you're going to become a parent um so Mm -hmm. making it just about your own personal private life is uh just doesn't bring all that into account and super importantly um one of their organizations, Sister Song, launched a Queer People of Color Caucus in 2006 to specifically talk about the needs of the queer community, in particular trans people, because the con- yeah. the things you have to consider about fertility if you are on hormone replacement therapy are really, really specific, and you need very specific guidance, and there is not a lot of education around that. Um, so that basically has broadened the discussion from of reproductive rights from being an individual privacy thing to a part of universal international um human rights issue rather you know rather than a small family one which is very very important and that's some really really good work being done by a lot of people who have been fighting for years so good luck good on all of them yeah (laughs) um 
the one last thing that I am going to say um, to answer Jennifer's friend's um, question completely is that people have used non-reproductive sex forever mm-hmm. um, yeah. as ways of having sex and doing sex work without having babies. Yeah. Um, oral and anal sex is as common and everywhere. as old as any kind. It's old as time, as old as mouths and anuses. Yeah. Um, and also intercrural sex, uh, which people don't talk about very often, but is when you squeeze the thighs together. Oh, sure. Um, and is um, something that does happen um, and has been um, developed by people to specifically be able to have sex without um, without having babies. Yeah. Um, and you see it in Greek erotica things. Um, yeah. We have always uh, wanted to get down and not have babies. Yeah. Um, it is face-to-face, not from behind. Um, and intracural sex is considered to be a... Uh, legitimate form of sex um <laughs> yeah yeah and is um in sri lanka for example it's a perfectly common type of sex that people have uh oh. hmm. but um yeah so that is that's how people have prevented pregnancy throughout the years yeah yeah i'm definitely Putting glad that we uh has, have sorted it out a bit better by this point although i do think there is still room to move apparently there are there's but no studies on what the side effects of coming off hormonal contraception are there are oh, really? studies into what it does when you are on it and there are studies about how it affects you long term but just what is what is going to happen when you come off it seems a very under-researched area huh. mm. that's interesting i know i mean it's not very unexpected <laughs> <laughs> um there we go that's everything, I think. Is it everything? I think that's everything. Um, next time, we are going to talk about the history of fashion and clothing. Yeah. Um, and how it has been... Um, often has been made very... Has been kind of part of law and denoting status. And this is combining two people's questions. Um... One is from Deborah Fox, who just said, can you do a history, a podcast about clothes in history? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and the other is Amanda Hendrickson, who said, what's the history of underwear? Which is a so great question. We are going to yeah. combine them together um, and talk about clothing and underwear. And hopefully it won't have any eugenics in it. <laughs> hopefully there'll be less eugenics. I mean, eugenics seem to appear a lot. They do. It's uh, when you least expect it. Yeah. Turns Uh, out there have always been people having very strong opinions about which people should be allowed to exist and which should not. Yeah, Mm. bastards. Bastards. Um. But yeah, so that's next time. Until then, Janina, where is the new place that people can find us? Historyisexy.com. Woo! Everything is there. Uh, Everything is there now, so you, you don't have to try to remember our anythings. Um, so yeah, so you can find us at historyofsex.com, you can buy a t-shirt, you can support us, you can say hi, you can send us a message, you can find our Twitters. 
Um, and that's it. Yeah. So we'll yeah. go. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.